call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse, and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially when my hypos gets such an upper hand on me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. Then, I account it is high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon the sword. I quietly take the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men, in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. There now is your insular city in the Manhattos, belted round by wharves as Indian isles by coral reefs. Commerce surrounds it with her surf. Right and left, the streets take you waterward. Its extreme downturn is the battery, where that noble mole is washed by waves, the cooled and cooled by breezes which, a few hours previous, were out of sight of land. Look at the crowds of water-gazers there. Circumbobulate the city of the dreamy Sabbath afternoon. Go from Collier's Hook to Coenty's Slip, and from thence, by Whitehall, northward. What do you see? Posted like silent sentinels all around the town, stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men fixed in ocean reveries some leaning against the spiles, some seated upon the pier heads, some looking over the bulwarks of ships from China, some high aloft in the rigging, as if striving to get a still better seaward peep. But these are all landsmen, of weekdays pent up in lath and plaster, tied to common counters, nailed to benches, clinched to desks. How then is this? Are the green fields gone? What do they hear? But look, here come more crowds, pacing straight for the water, and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange. Nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No. They must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can without falling in. And there they stand, miles of them, leagues. Inlanders all. They come from lanes and alleys, streets and avenues, north, east, south and west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compasses of all the ships attract them thither? Once more, say, you are in a country, in some high land of lakes. Take almost any path you please, and ten to one it carries you down in a dale, and leaves you there by a pool in the stream. There is magic in it. Let the most absent-minded of men be plunged in their deepest reveries. Stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going, and he will infallibly lead you to water, if water there be in all that region. Should you ever be athirst in the great American desert, try this experiment. If your caravan happened to be supplied with a metaphysical professor, 
Yes, as everyone knows, meditation and water are wedded forever. But here is an artist who desires to paint you the dreamiest, shadiest, quietest, most enchanting bit of romantic landscape in all the Valley of the Sarko. What is the chief element he employs? There stands his trees, each with hollow trunk, as if a hermit and a crucifix were within. And there and here sleeps his meadow, and there sleep his cattle, and up from yonder cottage goes a sleepy smoke. Deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spires of mountains, bathed in the hillside blue. But though the picture lies thus tranced, and though this pine tree shakes down its size like leaves upon the shepherd's head, yet all were vain, unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him. Go visit the prairies in June, when for scores on scores of miles you wade knee-deep among tiger lilies. What is the one charming wanting? Water. There is not a drop of water there. Were Niagara but a cataract of sand, would you travel your thousand miles to see it? Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, deliberate, deliberate whether to buy him a coat, which he sadly needed, or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to a rockaway beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why upon your first voyage as a passenger did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration? when first told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Parisians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity and own brother of Jove? Surely all this is not without meaning, and still deeper, the meaning of that story of Narcissus, who, because he could not grasp the tormenting, mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image... We ourselves see in all rivers and oceans. It is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life. And this is the key to it all.